Welcome everyone, this is meeting 161 and today is the 4th of May uh, 2023. First of all, I'm going to start with book news. C++ Bootcamp got updated and got another chapter, chapter 6, uh, Smart Pointers and Polymorphism. So this is the chapter where you learn how to program your way out of a paper bag, <laughs> as Fran promised. Indeed, it's a very important skill and actually quite a nice little kind of go-to problem that I've used for various showcasing various things, including some machine learning algorithms in a previous book. But this one, some blobs just move up the screen as some of them, in fact, all of them managed to escape the paper bag. So we start with some Basic blobs always do the same thing, which is boring, but it, it gets us going. And then we mix in something, some blobs doing some random steps, so you kind of race at the end. Yeah, so... Can you remind us when the paperback edition is coming out? So I'm not 100% sure. It depends how long it takes me to finish writing, but certainly early next year if not before then. I think it's scheduled for Feb next year. But one can already access partially uh, the book on the website. Yeah, so if you buy Manning's Early Access Programme, you've got access to this live book, which we're looking at now. And you can leave me comments there, and several people have. They've asked questions or suggested better ways of doing things. And you also get a uh, ebook copy or a PDF, so you can put it on a device of your choice as well. Nice. Uh, curious thing I noticed you are using East Const in your uh, code examples. Oh, uh, force of habit. Yes, that's a controversial one, isn't it? It's one of those mm. religious war wars. <laughs> well, and some people won't like the brace placement either. I've yeah, I started life with eats const and I know opinions are divided on this. Um force of habit. There is no disclaimer in the book explaining why there is const. Ah, uh, perhaps I should explain myself in the intro. Or go through and go west const or mix it up and be incoherent, which will make everyone angry. <laughs> Get people used to real code. Yeah, it's best to be consistent at least per file. Yeah, yes, quite. But I found that East Const is easier to explain uh, for beginners to demonstrate how compiler sees it. Although I think C++ core guidelines prefer West Const. So yeah. There is that. <laughs> Fair point. Right. Next up is a new issue of the Overload Journal, 174, with France editorial, the rise and fall of almost everything. And it's very interesting. There's philosophy and there's random numbers, so you should read it. The next article is Drawing a Line Under Aligned Memory by Paul Floyd. When we allocate memory, we often forget about alignment. Paul Floyd reminds about various aligned allocation functions. 
Yes, I've seen this problem in in production. We had a very hard to track bug with Eigen failing because the memory supplied to it wasn't aligned once in 10,000 allocations. So that was fun. Yeah. Paul Floyd does some pretty hardcore math stuff in his day job. So he knows quite a few edge cases, trying to encourage him to write more things for us. He, he knows a lot of things. <laughs> the article by Andreas Fertig, C++ 20 concepts, testing constraint functions. He says, concepts and re the requires clause allow us to put constraints on functions or classes and other template constructs. Andreas Fertig gives a worked example using how to test the constraints. Another article is by Lucian Radu Teodorescu in search of a better concurrency model. He presents current plans for concurrency in the VAL programming language, comparing them with other languages. And finally, Metaverse by T.D. Dai. And yeah, it's about Metaverse. I haven't read it. <laughs> I might need to explain this slightly. So observe this is April's edition. So usually Chris Oldwood writes something more kind of general high level for the last article. But every April we have a kind of April fall from, well, I believe she pronounces her name T.D.D., so you've got the test-driven development oh, right. going on there. And it's right. usually a skiff on something current. So this time she's decided to vent her fury on the metaverse and all things AI. So that, that's an April special. Every April there's something silly from TDD. It's nice. been a tradition for a while. Nice. Right. Next one update about the do expressions art, uh, paper. This is the uh, proposed syntax. It's an expression that starts with do. There are curly braces, and then you do do return inside, and that has its own type, but it's not quite a lambda because it's it doesn't introduce a new um, scope. No, it does introduce a new block scope but it does not introduce a new function scope. That's the thing. And uh, the interesting update about it was that it was discussed in UG, and there were a couple of polls. So the first poll was, UG encourages more work in the direction of do expressions as presented in the proposal. And there was consensus about this. So that was good. And the second poll was, interestingly, UG prefers the result of the do expression be last statement, a la GCC statement expressions prohibiting early return from a do expression. And that got consensus against. So I think that's also good. Um, I like early returns and don't like artificial constraints about returning early from a function. I think Scala has a, a, a notion of the default return from a function or a block, uh, which is the last statement. The value of the last statement is the return value. But I think it's good that we didn't get that. 
next up is this paper. It's quite a long one. Uh, we're not going to go through it in, in its entirety. The title is Don't Look UB, Exposing Sanitizer Eliding Compiler Optimizations. And that was kind of a, a public service announcement <laughs> because according to this article, if you build your sanitizer builds with optimization turned on, the optimizer may remove bugs that would otherwise be detected by the sanitizers. We, for example, we, we build, uh, usually build at 02 or at least 01, because otherwise it, running sanitized builds are, is, is very slow. And, and that's how the sanitizer documentation says, uh, states uh, this, that uh, they say that you should um, use optimization at least to one, otherwise it'll be too slow. But turns out that that might mask some bugs. And that's useful to know for anyone who's, who's using sanitizers. That's uh, <clears throat> that, that's a problem they have with uh, con with contracts also. You have to be very careful how you specify a condition in a contract so that it doesn't get eliminated. And there seems to be some reluctance to restrict the uh, contract predicates to avoid this problem. But it's a well-known problem. Maybe not in the context of uh, sanitizers. Mm. So our sanitized build tests in one project, they take maybe two hours to run. And when I turned off optimizations and tried to run it, run it, it took about two days. So that was... <laughs> but it did detect uh, quite a few problems that weren't otherwise um, visible. Or maybe I just should have run the sanitized tests more often. <laughs> I think a lot of those problems can be uh, detected statically. But of course, maybe if you avoid uh, sort of various antique uh, programming styles, uh, people don't. Mm. Uh, one of the bugs detected was uninitialized Boolean variable where uh, Ubisan says, well, this random value is not valid for Boolean. I guess that could have been detected by a static analyzer used before initialization. Yep, it can. Or if you're getting really simple-minded, like the core guidelines, it will simply reject it for not having been initialized. Yeah, that's true. I mean, sometimes you just have to be simple-minded to... Uh, be efficient and it gets in the way of some cases and some old habits but you can make the problem disappear much more easily than all this cleverness yeah i still need to turn on clank tidy for many of our projects this is the reddit thread about this um some examples and yeah keep that in mind and this is another uh, in-depth article uh, by Fang Song, uh, 
who describes how sanitizer interceptors work with lots of uh, useful information on implementation and yeah that's useful to know for anyone using sanitizers i mean it's not necessary to use them but it's useful to know how they work so that it's not like it doesn't appear to you as magic cpp2 spring update from herb sata is the next topic he says, since the year-end mini-update, progress has continued on CPP front. There is a link to his announcement video and in CPPCon 2022. He says, quote, This update covers acknowledgments and highlights of what's new in the compiler and language since last time, including simple, mathematically safe and efficient change comparisons, named break and continue, Simple and safe quotes starts with main. User-defined type, including unifying all special members, member functions as operator equals. Type namespace function object aliases. Header reflect.h with the start of the reflection API and the first 10 working compile time meta functions from uh, the proposal. P0707. Unifying functions and blocks, including removing colons and equals from the for loop syntax. There is a long list of contributors that Herb acknowledges. And then he goes through all the um, updates. Now this one, I really am not sure about. I mean, maybe it's me, but I've never used chained comparisons. And if you encounter something like this in, in code, I mean, it does look a bit confusing, doesn't it? I would agree. I would uh, leave a bad comment on the code review. Yeah. I mean, I guess mathematically you can do it, but why? <laughs> there is a proposal by Barry Revzin, chaining comparisons, which means someone needs it. Okay. Named break and continue. So you can continue to a label or break to a label. Some sort of go-to? Uh, yeah, go-to on steroids. Go-to with extra steps. <laughs> a new signature for main, which is just uh, has a single parameter args and that's a container. So he says, quote, yes, this is really is 100% C++ under the covers. As you see, as you can see on Godbolt Compiler Explorer, just nicer, in quotes. And the bullet points are the entire C++ standard library is available directly with zero thunking, zero wrapping, and zero need to include or import. It's just automatically there. Convenient defaults, convenient semantics and services, and type in memory safety by default. I also listened to the CPP cast episode, CPP2 with Herb Sata, which was published on the 31st of, May, of March, 2023. And that was very interesting. Timur and Phil asked lots of interesting questions and Herb is always uh, interesting to listen to. 
For example, he says CPP2 is to C++ as Swift is to Objective-C++. Mm, I'm not really sure about this. Does he think that Swift is based on Objective-C or it generates code in the same way? His example is that in later iterations of Objective-C, there was a construct introduced, a concept introduced of ARC, uh, automatic reference counting, which significantly reduced boilerplate code you needed to write to manage memory. And that's sort of, kind of, what Swift does under the wraps. But other than that, it's, I mean, to me, Swift looks like a different language. I think he had a slide uh, in, in his presentation and he was presenting comparisons of languages and some of them were just quote unquote, the evolution of a previous one, like JavaScript and TypeScript, and maybe objects uh, C and uh, Objective-C and Swift were also on that. So it's as a metaphor of kind of an evolution, evolutionary step at least towards something. I suppose. But yeah, I think it's a stretched uh, metaphor sort. Yeah, he also said that TypeScript could take any JavaScript code and compile it and it would be valid, uh, which is not the case with Swift and Objective-C. And coming back to CPP2, the more progress it makes, the more it looks to me like a different language. I predicted that. It's inevitable. Yeah. I can totally understand, understand this. He says it's a personal experiment, and I'd imagine as you work on something like that, you want to modify more and more things, and so it diverges more and more from the original syntax that was supposed to be slightly better into something that's completely different. I mean, it generates C++ and Herb specifically said that he worked, he tried to make the generated code look nice, as if it was written by hand. But still the divergence is growing, it seems to me. And although he says it's a, just a pers personal experiment, there are already lots of contributors and lots of enthusiasm and big expectations. So, yeah. Uh, if you read the Reddit thread, uh, there's lots of enthusiasm. Although some say that, yeah, CPP2 looks just looks really ugly to me. So I guess it's a matter of taste or maybe like you've already touched uh, this thing. Uh, I think you, Gianluca, said that someone's bound to not like some aspect of it. Uh, and uh, that will be the uh, sort of a, a sticking point. And if Herb is not uh, willing to change that, then the number of people who had great expectations and then were disappointed will grow. He says, it's really simple. I mean, he did say that, and that's a trigger for me. It means it's never going to be simple. It's simple for the author, I bet. 
But then not only you need to know all the quirks and and um, details of C++, you also need to know CPP2 and how that does things on top of C++ and what bugs that introduces. I mean, you, you're not expecting CPP2 be completely bug-free, right? Well, all new languages are, are advertised as being really simple. I, I remember when they were doing Java presentations where they were bringing the ARM, which was the document for C++ at the time, and in stage ripping out pages saying, this is what you don't have to know, this is what you don't have to know, this is what you don't have to know. Um, that's sort of the model of introducing a new language. Uh, you, you don't have to know all of this. You don't have to learn all of this. You don't have to uh, hire programmers that are uh, experienced. You can get anybody to use it because it's really simple. I'm maybe exaggerating a bit, but do you recognize that technique of getting a new language, uh, getting, getting interest for a new language? Yeah. So you should expect it. This also contradicts somewhat the idea that you, we should be preserving a nice, uh, nicely formatted, nicely readable, generated code. Because why would he, why would we have to bother generating nicely readable code if, in the end, we don't have to read it uh, to inspect what's going on? So, if we do want to keep uh, nicely generated code, it's probable because we need to actually take a look under the hood, which means we kind of need to know both of the languages. I may be guessing, but I think his motivation may be that if you use CPP2 and then it suddenly disappears for whatever reason, the experiment fails, for example, you still will end up with somewhat readable C++ code that it generates. I see. Apparently, you can mix CPP2 and C++ entity by entity in the same source file. That's, that's going to be fun. For example, um, he says, a colon always means I'm declaring a new thing and it has no other meaning. So presumably, CPP2 parser sees those declarations as part of CPP2 and uh, replaces them with the generated C++ code. Herb's proposals in the last seven years came from CPP2 work. So I expect CPP2 will have meta classes before long. In the podcast, they talked about Vittorio Romeo's epoch proposal, epochs. And, and Herb says that it's an interesting idea, but on the other hand, he would like fewer epochs. I think he, he said says, he wants one epoch. Yeah. Which Her I don't understand, you know, because if you do want to have one, then maybe he did mention that he wants one every 10 years or so. Once in 30 years opportunity, he said. 30 years. Because I think he, he meant a single epoch that he wants to introduce breaking changes into C++. Maybe reasonable, I'm not sure, but... 
Certainly an opinion that is going to stir some emotions. Definitely. And presumably this is what he thinks about CPP2 experiment. Uh, yeah, that's it's the epoch, new epoch. Yeah. Uh, maybe. Well, we'll see. Definitely something to watch. The comment thread for the podcast is also interesting to, to read. Uh, also, mm, quite a lot of enthusiasm. Uh, this Reddit post says, if exceptions were zero cost from the very beginning, would you have designed your libraries or app differently? And the poster says, I'm an exception lover, but I don't use but I don't use it as much as I would want to use it. But I've been recently thinking if I did use exceptions as much as I wanted to, without, with no worries, how would I have written my code different? Basically, uh, they say, if exceptions were zero cost, I'd probably end up using them as much, or maybe even more than if and else blocks or other control statements. And I'm like... No, probably do a bad that. idea. <laughs> That's not what they were designed for. I mean, an if then else is just much prettier than a try catch for starters. Yeah, and you're kind of moving towards just doing go tos at that point, trying to follow how you've ended up over here from over there. It's just like, ouch, <laughs> I'd rather not myself. I think a lot of uh, exception fear is just fear and rumors. If you use them reasonably, they essentially never trigger us unless there's something really wrong. And they are dirt cheap if you uh, don't uh, throw. That's what they were designed for, which leaves the problem if you have so little um, memory that you can't have an exception handling mechanism without uh, crowding out uh, utility, but uh, that, that's a different issue. If you have a real computer, uh, just use exceptions. That's what I do. But uh, if you see a lot of try blocks, there's something wrong with your code. Yeah, this is also the consensus of the thread in general, I think. Also, as there's been some measurements about what they, they cost. And very often people forget that if you don't have exceptions, you get a lot of externalities. Or you get these uh, fancy features for dealing with errors, which hides um, which hides the externalities. You, you get multiple threads anyway. So yeah, in most cases, don't worry about the cost of exceptions, but don't throw thousands of exceptions in quick succession either, as was the case in one of the benchmarks that decided that exceptions were very bad because a thread throwing thousands of exceptions in a quick succession was slow. Yeah, I can be slow in many, many ways. How about a near infinite loop doing essentially nothing? Or we had a case where uh, C++ code interfacing with uh, Java code appeared to be very slow because Java code used exceptions for slow control. So that was also misplaced blame. I mean, look, 
one of the things that was said very early on with exceptions was they are not for flow control. We are not using them to terminate loops. This is not um, Algo 68. This was found to be a really bad idea 40 years ago. I think we have a marketing issue here. Exceptions had bad PR. And then you have people littering their code with no except turning exceptions into terminate. <laughs> Obviously, embedded platforms are a special case when there's no heap or uh, there are hard no throw requirements. So I exactly. can sort of understand that. Well, hard no throw is, is rare, actually. But if, if you if the implementation mechanisms for exceptions crowd out functionality, or if error handling has time constraints, those are the places where you, you start worrying about exceptions. Microsoft has published an article titled Modern C++ Best Practices for Exception and Error Handling. And the first chapter in big letters is Use exceptions for exceptional code. Um, so yeah, worth reading that. I wonder who wrote it. Um, it doesn't contributors say, on the top. It said it doesn't say who is the original author. So, <laughs> yeah, eight contributors. Right. Some compiler news now. GCC 13.1 was released. Uh, this is the announcement. And it says, quote, the C frontend got support for several C23 features. The C++ frontend for C++ 23 features. The C++ standard library experimental support for C++ 20 and C++ 23 was enhanced. So, C++ 20 is still considered experimental in this GCC version. There's still no modules, although uh, there is some progress, apparently. And I'm not sure about format. There was an announcement earlier that this version, uh, version 13, was supposed to get C++20's format support. So maybe it is in, I haven't checked, actually. But if not, you can always use the excellent FMT library from Viktor Zverovich. It's really nice. Okay, next up is an article by Chris Wallens titled My Favorite C Compiler Flags During Development. I realize it's not strictly C++, but the flags are pretty much similar, so uh, I think it's relevant. He starts with this, quote, the major compilers have an enormous number of knobs, which is true. There's lots of switches and um, parameters to customize. So uh, he proposes a few uh, useful uh, warnings to enable. And luckily also not, not only uh, for GCC and Clang, but also for MSVC, which is really useful. And obviously, a similar baseline for MSVC to uh, W all and W extra is compiling your code 
at warning level four. Uh, I remember I had to fix an enormous amount of of warnings before switching from level three to level four. And if you enable all, then this STL doesn't compile with MSVC. So <laughs> level four is the best you can do at the moment. So yeah, a very useful article that you can use his uh, suggestions right away. And uh, discussions of this article on Hacker News and C Programming subreddit, which also have uh, lots of good suggestions. Right. Next up is Matchit. A lightweight header-only pattern matching library for C++ 17 with macro-free APIs. As we're all waiting for pattern matching to land in C++ 26, hopefully. I guess if you are eager to use matching, you can use this library. I think it. Oh, right. It has an Apache Apache license, which is permissive. And it supports Linux, Windows, and Mac OS. Is there an example? Yeah, I'm just scrolling to it. I think uh, there are quite a few. So this is one example. There is a function match that has sort of two sets of parentheses. One is the first one, you enclose the variable that you're matching. And the second one contains patterns with some weird syntax, including pipe, symbol, and they look quite readable, I would say. And there are facilities for more advanced matching, like you can match by class name or by, cl by type or uh, by yes. value. This is where I have a question. Look at that as circle, as square. Uh, do they check them one at a time or do they do a virtual uh, core? That is, uh -huh. building things like this and they ran very slow. They look pretty, but uh, you get in tests and they are dynamic tests. I think it, it's done dynamically. Um, the author says a class is dynamic cast is used by default for the as pattern but there are some customization points presumably can examples here it's reasonable if there's 50 alternatives you've just done a major major hit on your performance mm. this is easy to do um I, I had students do it 15 years ago but i rejected it for cost right yeah there is an article in the same repository that illustrates the it compares this uh, library to uh, pattern matching proposal and there is also another article that compares this to the rust pattern matching so yeah maybe as an experiment or if you do some benchmarks for your own use maybe it's you could use it it looks familiar to lex and yak long time ago that I used to see like this pipe yeah pipe is appearing in more and more 
proposals these days, even like some some sort of a pipe operator. There are things like matching tuples, matching variants, uh, matching polymorphic types, which happens dynamically as we just saw. Evaluating expression trees even. So I suspect you can write a very comp complex matcher that probably can run some <laughs> program. <laughs> uh, there are wildcards. And yeah, so it's quite an extensive set of matching available for this library. I, I um, together with a student, wrote a pattern matching system a long time ago. It was littered with macros, but it had the interesting property that it ran as fast as uh, Haskell and uh, uh, other languages like that were built into the compiler. It doesn't seem to be that a lot of these proposals actually worry too much about <clears throat> portability, and they don't worry too much about integration with the rest of the language. Um, this creates a problem because people who are interested in the whole language and more than one thing don't have as much time as uh, enthusiasts for a particular proposal. Yeah. I wonder how things are with the actual uh, pattern matching proposal by Michael Park. I haven't heard much. Hmm. Right. Next up is Clang 16 documentation. Uh, it was just released and there's a link to uh, some C++ changes. C++ 20 features got supported, some of them. Some bug fixes for C++ 20 uh, features. And I think Clang has more advanced support for C++ modules than GCC at this time. Right, so this is LV LVM15 release. And this is the Reddit thread. There is an interesting built-in function in Clang 15, starting with Clang 15. No, it started earlier, but in Clang 15, it got a nice update. And it's called double underscore built-in underscore dump underscore struct. So this is a useful debugging feature where you can uh, pass a structure and a uh, function to print it, like printf, and it will output all the structure uh, variables and values, which is really, really useful for debugging. Right. Uh, Boost 182 was released. Lots of updates, including libraries like ASIO, which is the go-to library for networking because yeah standard networking is probably not coming anytime soon interestingly really this boost release and the next 183 will be the last releases offering c plus plus o3 support for many of the libraries and about time i'd say <laughs> and the re related article the related post on Reddit, has Boost lost its charm? I mean, charm is probably not the right word, but if you need it, you can use it. It's got lots of useful stuff, but also be prepared to pull in like 
a ton of other stuff that you don't use if you use just one thing. And that's part of the problem. Once you pulled it in, you find that somebody in the organization will use the bits that you weren't planning to use. Yeah. A quote from the thread. Since C++11, Boost has shifted from provide actually useful basic containers because the STL is shit to provide cool quality stuff that is widely useful but out of scope for the STL. See things like flyweight, spirit, log, multi-precision, safe integer, ASIO. Boost is still a wonderful library collection. So, yeah. This is an interesting article called A General Overview of What Happens Before Main. It's a low-level explanation of how a C or C++ program, programmer's life begins before the main function is called. And this is especially useful for those working with embedded uh, platforms, but is also interesting to, to know for any C++ programmer. Uh, what happens before the start function is called. That is, the start is the entry point and before main, uh, it's called before main. And there was a, also a talk by Matt Godbolt called in CppCon 2018 called The Bits Between the Bits, How We Get to Main. It was a very good talk. That's pretty much all his talks. Next is a lighter topic. Dan Ports write on Mastodon, quote, This is your periodic reminder that 10 years ago, an audiophile forum started debating which versions of memcopy had the highest sound quality. And that C++ new sounds better than malloc. It's for real? <laughs> yeah, apparently. <laughs> I went to the forum. And uh, this is the post, uh, one of the posts is like a long thread. This one says, playing wave files from a RAM disk gave best sound, then moved on to memory play. Initially sound quality was worse. Found that a function called memcopy was the culprit. Most memory players use memcopy, and this is one of the reasons why memory play sounds worse, like digital sounding. Fortunately, there is an optimized version. Using this version removes the hard edge produced by memcopy. Also, most players use malloc to get memory, while new is the C++ method, and sounds better. Uh, yeah, dimly, re dimly related topic. I, I remember somebody giving a lightning talk at a conference years ago, and they transformed the... Um, compiled output, I think it was, from various different programming languages or just the, the text of the code into sounds somehow and just played all these noises at us. And the audience had to guess which programming language it had originated from, from all these weird beeps. And we actually got it right sometimes. I can't remember how they'd encoded it, but that, that was good fun. The very long ones was probably a template error. Maybe. <laughs> 
I remember someone came up with this debugging technique, I think in the, in the um, iOS programming, which sometimes is difficult to attach debugger to or something. So they mm-hmm. came up with a technique where they output it as, um, played a sound in some places and different sounds gave you uh, different diagnostics that you could uh, guess. But this is just some something else. I mean, uh, I didn't even suspect that Hue um, sounded better than Memcopy and Malak. Uh, I guess it's a question for Timur. He he used to work in audio world, and I mean, I think it also makes fun of you know some of the audio fidelity people also are you know sometimes known for being pedantic or crazy about stuff that doesn't always exist <laughs> sometimes yes <laughs> uh there, there could be some sorry there could be something with the audio quality like if your hardware is so of such poor build that there is electromagnetic interference actually going out of your speakers then using different code sequences actually may affect this noise so yeah but i would suggest using a better shielded equipment rather than changing your code um if you want uh, something of the same, uh, go to Amazon and read reviews of the audiophile uh, cables, audio cables, with uh, deoxygenated copper wires or something, and uh, uh, wires trained on classical music. So uh, <laughs> one wire uh, costs about $7,000, I think, and uh, some uh, the, the one of the first reviews was like someone said when I bought this cable and played my music through it uh, I I heard angels singing to me anyway yeah. interestingly now also discussing ethernet cables like copper free ether, um, <laughs> network cables for network streaming uh, and the quality of the digital data yeah yeah it's totally bonkers <laughs> <laughs> for the for the classic music, the voltage is also very important. So they have have the spatial, uh, the voltage, you know, stabi- uh, stabilizer to make sure you know the, the sound action. It's very expensive though for the amplifier. Of course, I remember the blind test where audio files were uh, exposed to music played through very expensive copper wires, and the other one was played via a coat hanger. And no one could feel any difference. But in this case, actually, someone came up with a plausible reason for this. Someone says, quote, I'm disappointed by the arrogance of users on this forum. I've never had great luck being 100% confident about the behavior of code without running it. But in this case, reading the actual code posted will show you that using a bad mem copy could have potentially caused a problem with audio quality. Uh, TLDR, bytes are bytes, but the linked to post is actually about latency, not data integrity. I think it was about the feel of the sound, and not, I mean, an audio file exposed to chopped up sound would probably end the experiment right there. But I think the original forum was exactly about the uh, supposed better sounding, warmer sounding operator new. Uh, anyway, right, the last one is from Mastodon. It's uh, by Isaac Freeman, quote, The worst thing that ever happened in software engineering 
was when Kirk asked Scotty how long something would take, and Scotty said 30 minutes, and Kirk said, you've got five, and Scotty got it done in five. And depressionable children watched this and grew up to become managers. Right, I think that's it for today. Thank you very much for coming, and I'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Thank you very much. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you.